We don't have to look too far back in history to find blatant examples of bias in the diagnosis and treatment of women in psychiatry. In fact, this historical lens helps us to realize that gender bias is still very much happening today. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with the authors of a Medical Humanities article on the modern history of treating women in psychiatry. The article is published in CMAJ. Mary Koziel is a fourth-year medical student at McGill University. She'll be starting her residency in family medicine at the University of British Columbia in July. Andrea Tone is a professor of history in the Department of Social Studies of Medicine at McGill University and holds the Canada Research Chair in the Social History of Medicine. I've reached Mary in Toronto and Andrea in Montreal. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, yes. Mary, there's a long and sometimes terrifying history of treatment for women's mental illnesses, and we'll get into that shortly. But to begin, can you tell us about the state of mental health and suicide rates today? Yes, absolutely. I'll start on a positive note. Uh, in Canada, on a per capita basis, suicide rates are actually on a downward trend. They peaked in 1983 at about 15 deaths per 100,000 people. But that's totally opposite in young people and especially young women. Uh, young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and substance abuse disorders more so than any other age group and this actually made headlines uh, last August in the U.S. when the National Center for Health Statistics reported that between 1975 to 2015 suicides rates among women aged 15 to 19 hit a 40-year high. Um, and also between 2007 and 2015, suicide rates among the female de demographic had doubled. So those are U.S. statistics that I'm giving you. So to, then to bring it back to Canada, over the past decade, the suicide rate among females under the age of 19 has increased by 38%, while male suicide decreased by 34%. Um, so when these statistics were discovered, pub the Public Health Agency of Canada in 2012 were urging research researchers to look at why suicide has declined in teen boys in the, since the 1980s, but not in girls. Um, so to, to give a bit of broader um, context to the, the discussion of gender discrepancy within medicine, I wanted to take note of two things. Um, one is that it's widely taught. Uh, it's uh, noted several times uh, while I was in medical school that, well, men are more likely to commit suicide, women are more likely to attempt suicide. Um, and then the other uh, gender discrepancy, which is uh, widely noted in medicine, is that men have higher rates of addiction than women, while women have higher rates of mood and anxiety disorders. And I raise these three points as a way of emphasizing that the way we talk about mental illness and suicide is very much gendered already. Um, and why are there these differences? Is it representative of an organic difference in how mental illness manifests in men and women or a consequence of the social conditions of men and women and how they're conditioned to verbalize distress? Is it related to doctors, the ways in which we classify illnesses such as anxiety and depression or the language we associate with these conditions? Uh, so part of the work Dr. Tone and I have undertaken together is trying to understand these gender differences in mental health using the history of psychiatry as our guide. We look to the past and not because we're 
trying to find any sort of straightforward answers, but it can alert us to patterns that better inform how we understand the current crisis. And then our hope is that we can use the knowledge and the understanding we gain uh, to try and affect meaningful change. So to go back to the history that you've been talking about, we don't have to go that far back in history to see some extreme treatment options for psychiatric illness. In the 1940s, the neuropsychiatrist Dr. Walter Freeman popularized a particular surgery. Can you tell us about Dr. Freeman and what kinds of illnesses he treated? Yes, so this is Andrea. Um, I want to preface this by saying that I will certainly elaborate on Freeman, but at the same time, I want to underscore, I think it's sometimes dangerous if we focus on one lone doctor and of consider him to be the person responsible for bad things, in this case, bad things in psychiatry. But we can return to that later. So let's talk about Walter Freeman. Um, he is the individual who is considered the most ardent enthusiast and proponent of lobotomy. But he began as a neurologist. He came from a very affluent medical family in Philadelphia. And he received his medical training at the University of Pennsylvania there as well. Um, he, he's an interesting person, um, separate from lobotomy and history of psychiatry. His grandfather, I don't know if listeners will know this, uh, had been a former president of the American Medical Association. But what he was better known for <clears throat> is being the very first surgeon to remove a brain tumor from a living patient. Um, and it does seem clear that from an early age, Freeman wanted to be that kind of, you know, respected and well-known physician that his grandfather had been. So he got his training in neurology and then was appointed um, as a medical director at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. And this is important because at that time, St. Elizabeth's Hospital was one of the largest, if not the largest, hospitals for the mentally ill in North America. It had about 5,000 patients in it. And because it was a public institution, as were most psychiatric asylums in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, it meant that uh, when Freeman took this position, he you know, had to deal with the reality of what some scholars have called a therapeutic nihilism in psychiatry, which translated <laughs> means basically that psychiatrists and other physicians really didn't have good tools to treat patients. They also didn't have tools to cure patients. So what hospitals like St. Elizabeth's were doing was mainly providing custodial care um, and if, again, it's a public hospital, custodial care might mean that these hospitals were terribly understaffed, they were crowded, uh, patients were strapped to beds in some instances, many were malnourished, emaciated, you know, being forced to sleep in their own feces. You know, it's really not what we would want to see in a psychiatric hospital. But for Freeman then, you know, he was trying to figure out a way to change what he saw as just kind of like this 
solid wall of despair. He wanted to come up with something that he felt would do more than provide the kind of custodial care that had been uh, given at St. Elizabeth's and was being given at other psychiatric hospitals in Canada and the United States at this time. So the people who had been or who were most likely to be institutionalized at this time were patients, uh, mainly men, interestingly, but patients who had been uh, diagnosed with disorders ranging from agitated depression, catatonic depression, psychosis, mania, uh, problems that manifested themselves through symptoms that we would today uh, consider similar to schizophrenia. So those are the kinds of uh, patients that he treated, to your question, and also the kind of environment in which he himself found himself being in, the problems that he faced. That context that you've given into the lack of tools that psychiatrists had in those decades they, we didn't have the psychotropic drugs that we have now. And so you can see there was a sort of a, um, a desperation really to treat these very, very difficult patients. Now, psychosurgery, I guess, is one thing that became popular at the time. Can you talk a little bit about how that was used? Yeah. So what happened is that Freeman, you know, stuck at St. Elizabeth's, uh, encountered, uh, what he saw as kind of a, Alone and possibly irrelevant bit of literature from a Portuguese neurologist who had pioneered uh, psychosurgery, which involved uh, performing an irreversible surgery in which the frontal lobes in the brain were severed, and he, the neurologist in Portugal, had reported some very positive results. So when we think of lobotomy today, or when we look at the history of lobotomy in the United States and Canada in the 20th century, really then talking about um, a surgery that Freeman then tweaked and re-engineered based on what the Portuguese neurologist had reported on, and that is what we today call lobotomy. And he performed the very first lobotomy in North America in the 1930s. He did so with uh, James Watts, who was a surgeon. And he, we discussed this in the article. He and Watts published in the late 1930s a, an article that uh, reported on what had happened to the six psychiatric patients who had received this new surgery, the lobotomy. And um, although Watts and Freeman concluded that it was still sort of too early to say if this would be an effective treatment for psychiatric patients, you know, the overall tone was very optimistic. What is important, I think, to underscore, however, is that lobotomy in the 1930s was quite different from lobotomy in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And it was in the 1940s where lobotomy really picks up steam, where we see thousands of patients being lobotomized. It's not a treatment of last resort in the late 1940s. It's becoming more mainstream and less marginal. But the initial surgery that Watson Freeman uh, wrote about 
involves having uh, other personnel present. So Freeman, neurologist, Watts, uh, surgeon, um, performing this irreversible brain surgery in a medical environment where in addition to that personnel, you would also have um, access to, you know, excellent medical uh, tools. You would be in a hospital setting so that if something went wrong, others could take care of this person. You would have an anesthesiologist on hand to make sure, again, that this patient was um, unconscious. And, you know, while that was promising, it was also very expensive, and it was more time-consuming than what Freeman wanted. Freeman wanted to try to find a way in which he could deliver a really fast and very inexpensive uh, surgery that could be used to treat as many patients as possible. Initially, he called this surgery a surgery of last resort. By the 1940s, he was going to hospitals throughout the United States and, you know, performing dozens and dozens of these um, during a single day. But what was different is that the surgeries that um, became best known or the transorbital lobotomy that we today associate with Freeman, um, he basically ditched all other medical personnel. He argued that you did not need to have... Um, a lobotomy be performed in a medical setting, um, and that you could do the whole thing in less than five minutes. So what Freeman did essentially was to take this, uh, you know, more elaborate, complex brain surgery and try to, you know, sell it to doctors, but also to the media as this amazing new tool. And guess what? It's inexpensive. It's super easy to do. I mean, there was you know, some joking that, you know, he didn't, wasn't sure that you had to have a doctor perform it either. And so what we're talking about is that Freeman would, without Watts, without any other um, medical individuals supporting him, is that he would take a patient and give that patient ECT to the point where that patient would be rendered unconscious. And then he would use a long metal instrument and would insert it through the eye socket and into the frontal lobes, and he would move that um, instrument back and forth in a way that some have likened to the actions of a windshield wiper. And uh, he would then remove the long metal tube and give the patient um, glasses to hide the bruising that would uh, happen. But he was able to do that um, in about five minutes, and he encouraged other doctors to do the same. And, you know, we can say that Freeman, if it weren't for Freeman, you know, the era of lobotomy wouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm less convinced. And I think what's important to remember is that the reason lobotomy became so well-known and so widely used wasn't simply because of Freeman. It was because of a larger environment, um, economic, medical, social, certainly gendered, that enabled that kind of surgery to be performed over and over again. So great context and a great summary of 
of Freeman's work and how lobotomy was popularized. Now, as part of an underpinning of the article that you've written, you've examined in detail which patients were actually lobotomized. And what did you find? Um, Well, what we found was that a majority of patients who were lobotomized were women. um, And the you know, the data that was available back then isn't of the same quality or, or caliber of the data that we have now. And yet, if you do go back and dig through the records, if you look at uh, Freeman and Watts's records, if you look at some of the few surveys of psychiatric hospitals that were uh, undertaken, what you see consistently is that a majority of individuals who were lobotomized were women, even though a majority of patients who were institutionalized in psychiatric hospitals were men. So that's a pretty um, deep gender disparity. Gosh, that's pretty shocking. It probably reflects the um, the ease with which the procedure came to be performed. Yeah, you know, so one of the things that I, I hope our our article achieves is that when we when um Mary and I looked at, you know, the available research and what others had sort of written about this, we're not the first scholars, you'll probably cut this part out of the pocket. We're not the first scholars to have noted that there is a gender disparity in the practice of lobotomy before psychopharmacology sort of ended lobotomy's very long um, and disturbing reign. But what we also notice is that this gender bias uh, seems just to be so ingrained that it didn't warrant sort of separate commentary. So if we go back to what I mentioned previously, the very first article that Freeman and Watts published in the late 1930s talking about the promise of lobotomy for psychiatric patients, he doesn't mention um, directly that five of the six patients were women. And it's that silence um, coupled with that obvious disparity that is really disturbing and underscores the point that sometimes you can have biases that are so ingrained that they don't um, warrant extra comments. I mean, it's quite curious to sort of read through the article and to have both of them discuss these case studies, but not to see them say, isn't it interesting that we have five women who seem to have responded very well? And there is no analysis of that gender breakdown, although again, you know, it's there. Very interesting. So in the 1950s and 1960s, we start to see a rise in psychotropic drug options, such as chlorpromazine and diazepam or Valium for treating mental illness. What we might not realize is that there was a huge amount of gender bias then too. So can you explain what that's about? I will try to explain what that's about. Um, so as you mentioned, so the arrival of Thorazine, uh, generic chlorpromazine, in 1954 is usually considered sort of the, the end point for the era of lobotomy. Interestingly, however, when Thorazine was first being marketed to physicians, it was marketed as a chemical lobotomy. 
And so while I think that the drugs that became available, starting with Thorazine and then, as you say, medications to treat outpatient psychiatric disorders, anxiolytics such as Valium, antidepressants, um, these are very different therapies from lobotomy. And I don't want to conflate drugs with an irreversible uh, brain surgery. But what's interesting is that there are certain connections between these two. And while, you know, in medical history, there's been a lot of effort for, among scholars as well as physicians, to sort of look backwards and say, oh, well, you know, we didn't have anything to do with lobotomy. We're now using pills to treat patients. This is a brand new day. The um, The therapies are new, yes. But it makes sense at the same time that individuals who are uh, diagnosing and evaluating patients, their views aren't necessarily going to change overnight. So in some ways, it's not entirely surprising that a gender bias that was so really very ingrained in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s would continue, although the actual therapies that were being administered by doctors changed so significantly. Um, but to, you know, your point about drugs such as Valium, and I should say that there, we don't really have good records to say precisely what demographic received uh, Thorazine or what demographic received, used the very first minor tranquilizers. But when we do start to get those really uh, clear, accurate surveys, and that doesn't happen until the 1960s and 1970s, we see that an overwhelming number of patients who are taking these psychiatric drugs are women. If we look at medical advertising from the same time period in the 60s and 70s, we see that companies are targeting doctors and encouraging them to prescribe drugs like Valium, you know, today Ativan, Xanax, et cetera, for women. And the narrative that they use in these ads to suggest that women would you know, definitely benefit from drug treatment um, it supports a narrative that is really sort of quite offensive, uh, especially from our perspective today. So, um, you know, the ads for Valium might say that, well, the one in particular is about a woman in her 30s who, alas, has a problem with her dad, daddy issues, and that has left her, um, you know, single. And as a result, she needs Valium because what could be worse than having a single woman in her 30s having daddy issues with no marriage on the horizon? Or you'd see ads saying, oh, no, you know, we need to medicate a woman who, let's say, you know, is a teacher and she's showing up in the classroom with her hair unkempt and looking in some way disheveled. I'm not actually exaggerating. Alas, this is the kind of a language and the images that were used to encourage physicians to prescribe um, these drugs. And then in some ways, then that narrative of what women should be and how you as a doctor should intervene to guarantee that they end up being uh, a certain way does link back 
to lobotomy. You know, lobotomies rendered patients docile. Um, in some ways, you know, prescribing Valium and other tranquilizers achieved the same result for women. So in the article, you circle back and make this interesting point about biases even today and the way that suicide rates are reported in the media. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so when Mary and I were doing research for this article, we talked a lot about the dangers of coming up with uh, categories and classifications. And in some ways, our, our art article really sort of deals with the drawbacks of imposing certain categories and defining those categories in restrictive ways. I, you know, what a woman should be allowed to do or what is a pathology that therefore requires a medical intervention. Um, and when we were looking at the statistics from the National Center for Health Statistics, we noticed that indeed, yes, suicide rates among women between the ages of 15 and 19 have hit a 40-year high. But when we looked more carefully at the data that had been released, rather than just the, you know, the 30-second snippet on the news summarizing that data, is that suicide rates for other groups were also rising. And it sort of made us ponder and puzzle about the dangers of categorizing people in a certain way or telling a medical narrative that privileges one concern perhaps over another. Um, and I don't have a clear-cut answer as to how to you know, fix that problem. So if we go back to the example of the National Center for Health Statistics, you know, which shows that uh, suicide rates are rising for young men, they're rising for transgendered youth. And the problem is that if you're not digging into those statistics, you might never know that from, again, the very quick reportage you might get through the news. So how do we then go back and look at that data? How do we alert people who care about these issues, you know, suicide, um, people suffering from a variety of complaints, you know, how do we steer individuals to look beyond the headlines and and think about all the different demographic groups who are suffering, but that you would not necessarily know that because of how these classifications and categories are used. Yeah, you make a really good point that there's there's a wealth of data that create a big picture, but we tend to focus on bullet point details. So Mary, coming back to you, what would doctors of the future say about the current state of psychiatry and gender bias within the discipline, do you think? Where are we now? Are we doing any better? Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, if it's okay, I'll talk more broadly about gender bias within medicine, because what I don't want to do is give the impression that this is somehow a problem that's limited to psychiatry. And I think that I can say as a medical student who's been in many different fields and various hospitals, um, as well as, you know, having combed through the literature, there's many, many different examples of gender bias. Um, so I did a preliminary search and you can find things from women who are underdiagnosed and undertreated for endometriosis, ranging to heart attacks and not being trained to recognize the signs of heart attack in women and not making sure that women get uh, seen with the urgency that men do. Mm -hmm. And of course, these kinds of discrepancies can't just be explained by gender bias. 
but there is strong evidence, including an extensive database through an organization called Project Implicit, that documents how biases influence how we assess and ultimately how we treat patients. And what I really want to emphasize is that these biases are often hidden, even to those enacting them. So just to say that another way, a physician may treat a female patient differently because of her gender, but they're not aware that they're doing it. And so this phenomenon of the thoughts and feelings outside of conscious awareness and control is, uh, it's been coined implicit social cognition. And that's, um, I mentioned project implicit. That's really what it's focusing on is, uh, amassing data and research to determine what our implicit biases are uh, within various fields, not just within medicine, and then how those manifest in our practice and what sorts of consequences that they have. Um, so there's a wealth of publications that show, one, that humans have biases with regards to age, gender, weight, uh, ethnicity, uh, and so forth. Uh, and also there's research within the database that shows that medical practitioners are just as susceptible to these biases as our non-physician peers. And like I mentioned, that these biases do influence our clinical decision making. Uh, so I'll just give one example from outside of the realm of psychiatry, um, which was a study of pain management in an urban ER found that women were 13 to 25 percent less likely than men to receive opioid analgesia and waited longer to see a doctor, too. And I bring that up in context of this conversation on mental health because I think that they're related. How do women express pain? Do we take men's pain more seriously? Are women stereotyped to be more emotive? So all of these uh, biases that we may have that are perpetuated within our schooling systems, within the media, uh, certainly influence the way that doctors think and the way they make decisions and ultimately treat patients. Um, so your question was, are we doing any better in reducing biases in medicine? Uh, I think the answer is unsurprisingly yes and no. Um, yes, in that, of course, an increasing emphasis on evidence-based medicine reduces the room for subjectivity. Uh, algorithms help ensure uniformity in the way we treat people. Uh, and then further, it's imp really important to say that as a society, we've progressed with regard to our views on gender. And so what was acceptable 20 or 50 years ago is no longer acceptable today. So if doctors' values and norms are reflective of the society in which we live, it, it follows that as society progresses, we as physicians progress as well. But what I hope that I'm underscoring by discussing implicit bias is that we still have a lot of work to do. We live in a society in which stereotypes abound. We're not immune from this. And we're often not aware of the ways in which these societal biases may influence us. So I think it's going to require ongoing education and consciousness raising. And I've certainly received some of that education um, within my, uh, my undergraduate degree at McGill. Um, and that sort of work and these kinds of discussions need to continue so that we can address our own biases within the profession, both those that are implicit and otherwise. That's really well said. And it strikes me what Andrea was saying earlier about how um, the gender bias was with lobotomy, for example. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is in perhaps in the last few years, it's become very much in the mainstream where we talk about how in business or in academia or in, even in medicine, if women behave in a certain way, they're seen as strident and demanding and difficult. And if men behave in that way, they are seen as, you know, having self-confidence. 
And so we have this awareness, even though it's perhaps still contested, we have the awareness, but we were looking back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s to a time where if a woman was argumentative or strident, she was seen as being possibly mentally ill. And Mm -hmm. there was no questioning of the rightness or wrongness of that. But I think going forward, people might look back and say we had our own biases that we just were not aware of. You know, one thing I did want to say, and it just goes back to um, an earlier point, one reason why I think it's important when we look back to the history of medicine, in this case, history of psychiatry, is, as Mary said, not to find, you know, clear-cut answers that will help us understand current concerns better or map the future of medicine differently, but because there are certain patterns and problems that do seem to reverberate over time. And you know, one of my concerns and one of the reasons why we included lobotomy at all is that it's a very good example of how determinations of pathology, determinations of what gets counted as an effective therapy are so historically contingent. You know, the Portuguese neurologist who's considered the putative founder of psychosurgery won a Nobel Prize in 1949. 1949 is, you know, especially for historians, not that long ago. Um, and yet what happened after with the advent of psychopharmacology is, you know, doctors and others were quick to distance uh, this new age of medicine, this new era of psychiatry from the lobotomy era that preceded it. And as part of that distancing, there's a lot of finger pointing. And it just was uh, very evident that people in the 50s and even today, you know, through documentaries such as PBS's Acclaimed the Lobotomist, which focuses on Freeman, people will finger point at an individual and say that this problem, this horrible chapter in the history of medicine is because of this one rotten apple or this one bad egg. And that is a really comforting way of looking at the past because if we can say this is something that happened because of the actions and views of one individual, then no one else is really responsible. There's no uh, need to evaluate the us as a community and to think about how we enable this practice to occur. And I think that's, you know, something that as we go forward and think about how can we do better, we need to keep in mind is that, you know, the decisions that are made by individuals are important, but it's that broader context in which those decisions are made, in which certain actions are taken, in the way we treat women as patients, as colleagues, you know, as grant reviewers. Uh, it's, the, it's a larger pattern, and we need to be attentive to the different variables that are involved and not be too quick to just sort of say, he's to blame or she's to blame. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I've been speaking with Mary Koziol, a fourth-year medical student at McGill University, and Andrea Tone. Professor of History in the Department of Social Studies of Medicine at McGill. To read the Humanities article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes and to leave us a rating. 
I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Thank you.